0: Just a quick heads up that there is some swearing in this episode. Okay, here's the show. One of the things I noticed this week when I was researching this episode is that very few virologists want to talk publicly about the lab leak theory of COVID. So when I got Angie Rasmussen on the line on Wednesday afternoon, I wanted to know why she was different. Why are you willing to talk about it?
2: Because I shot my mouth off about it in February 2020. In
0: her day job, Angie studies emerging viruses at the Vaccine and Infectious Disease Organization at the University of Saskatchewan in Canada. In her off time, on Twitter, she's pretty famously blunt.
2: I don't remember what I called Tom Cotton, but it was something probably not very nice because he was at the time saying that You know, for sure, this was manufactured, and it may have been intentionally released, it may have been accidentally released, but this is the product of, you know, so-called gain-of-function research and possibly a bioweapons program. And even back then, when we knew very, very little, that did not seem plausible to me at all. It is definitely possible to
0: get sick in a lab that handles pathogens. Angie is the first person to admit that.
2: It's something that I worry about every day. Right behind me is a containment lab that I work in. Uh, Right now, there's nobody in there. Oh, yeah. And that's actually a tuberculosis lab. But um, I work in the lab right next door on the other side of that wall. And... Maintaining proper biosafety protocols is something that means a lot to me because I, I literally don't want there to be a lab leak in my own community with me as the index patient when I'm working with sars coronavirus 2 or anything else. I think that you know most virologists who are doing this work, it's something we're keenly aware of, the possibility of, of having happen. But it's
0: not what Angie thinks happened in the case of COVID. Indeed, she co-authored a paper published last year in Science Magazine saying SARS-CoV-2, that's the virus's formal name, came from a market in Wuhan. She is firmly Team Zoonotic Spillover.
2: I'm uh, on the so-called um, zoonotic. That's one of the names that some of the lab leak proponents have started for us. Oh, boy. We're like the Illuminati, except, I guess, the virology and evolutionary biology version of that. Some other people call us the zoo crew. But yes, I think I'm like the the head bitch in charge of, like, the zoonati. But Angie also has an open mind. She's willing
0: to blow up her own hypothesis. What I wanted to know is whether this week's news from the Energy Department submitting a vote in favor of the lab leak theory was enough for her. Today on the show, my Angie is still skeptical. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and you're listening to What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick around. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. the National Intelligence Council put out a report evaluating different theories of where COVID-19 came from. In that paper, four intelligence agencies thought the origin was zoonotic, with low confidence. Two were undecided. And the FBI, with moderate confidence, thought it came from a lab. This week, the Wall Street Journal broke the story that the Energy Department, which was part of that original report, had now shifted to favor the lab leak theory, with low confidence. The DOE report is classified, so we can't fully evaluate it. But I asked Angie what she thought of the journal story when she read it.
2: It was really light on any details. Um, Essentially, that reporting said, well, the DOE says that, you know, with low confidence, it's a lab leak. And that was it. Like, no evidence. These IC assessments are from a minority of the eight different IC intelligence community yeah, exactly. These conclusions that it was a lab leak uh have come now from two, the FBI and the Department of Energy. There's four others that um have said with low confidence that they think it, it's a natural zoonotic origin. And then there's two that are undecided. So I would say that that is a minority of the IC agencies that have been looking into this and while the investigation's ongoing. And I understand that, you know, intelligence is like, spy stuff and uh some of that will be classified and not declassified it's really impossible to say how confident i should be about any of this how much it would move the needle because again i can't evaluate that evidence what i do know is that things that are of low or even moderate confidence as said by both the DOE and reiterated last night by fbi director christopher ray
0: The FBI has for quite some time now assessed that the origins of the pandemic are most likely a potential lab incident in Wuhan.
2: I don't think that it's going to completely upend what our conclusions say and what the bulk of the scientific evidence shows.
0: One of the reasons I wanted to talk to you was that you wrote on Twitter that you have an open mind. And I wonder if you could put into lay language, like what what it would take for you to be convinced.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So why don't I tell you what's convinced me so far that yeah. in fact it is zoonotic. We actually do have quite a bit of evidence that shows that the pandemic started at the Juan and Seafood Market sometime um, probably in late November at the latest early December, 2019. And that data is really multiple threads of evidence that show that not only were there live animals at the wanted market, they were there at that time, including species that we know are susceptible to SARS coronavirus too, including raccoon dogs, including minks, including red foxes. We also know that when these animals were sold at the wanted market, and we know this actually because one of my co-authors visited the wanted market in 2014, presented to him as a place where spillover was likely to occur. Hmm. And he was able to take pictures of some of these same species of animals, including raccoon dogs, being kept in very close quarters with people with other species of animals. So the conditions were right. And then we did an analysis of all the early cases of SARS coronavirus 2 or NCOV 2019 at the time, regardless of where they were or whether or not they had any epidemiological link to the market. We took those early cases and looked at whether or not they were associated with the market, whether or not epidemiological investigations had linked them to the market somehow. So they went there, they worked there. We looked at those cases and sure enough, all the cases altogether were strongly associated with the market at the center, which you would expect if you're including those cases with known links to the market.
0: But then when the team looked at early cases of COVID
2: among people who didn't work at the market or shop at it, it turned out they lived nearby. It is not a coincidence, essentially, that that market is right in the middle of all those cases that, again, had no link whatsoever to the market. So that said that, essentially, we were on the right track. The second thing we looked at were those animals. And this is the part that I contributed to uh, more. And that was that, We did a whole bunch of different types of detective work, as well as looked at the WHO mission reports, as well as looked at a paper that was published in the summer of 2021 that uh, was not actually remotely about coronaviruses or anything like that. It was looking for ticks um, in animals that were being sold at live animal markets in Wuhan from 2017 to 2019. And even though the WHO report, mission report said that there were no animal, no live animals being sold at, at Wanan, um, this paper conclusively showed that, yeah, consistently actually all these different species, including all these susceptible species, were sold there from 2017 into late 2019 when the pandemic started until the market was closed. We were also able to find a report from the China CDC that showed that there were environmental samples all over the place. That's like a swab from the market? That's like a swab from the market. And those were positive for SARS-2. They were able to sequence whole genomes off of them. They also um, tended to cluster in the part of the market where not only did they sell the animals, there were actually five positive environmental samples at the same stall where my co-author, Eddie Holmes, photographed a raccoon dog being clubbed to death in 2014. So this really indicated to us that Not only was the live animal trade alive and well, but it was occurring, in fact, at at Juan and Market, including of species that are susceptible. And then finally, another companion paper that I wasn't a co-author on looked in great detail at the phylogenetic analysis, meaning it looked at the sequences of all those early cases uh, of the virus. And what they found was that there were actually two separate lineages, so essentially two variants. Um, there is no way that that could have happened as a single spillover event. So that means that there basically had to be two spillovers at the market, probably within a, about two weeks of each other.
0: Because a virus wouldn't have had time to, to to
2: mutate into two different lineages? What it all boils down to is that there. if you try to explain this as a lab leak, That means that you had to have somebody, and if we're talking about the Wuhan Institute of Virology, it's on the other side of the Yangtze River, and uh, it's about eight kilometers away. You're talking about somebody gets infected with Lineage B at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, for some reason goes straight to the Wanan market without infecting anybody else on the way there, and uh, then the next week or two later, the same exact thing happens independently with Lineage A. Is it possible? Yeah. I mean, a lot of things are possible, but isn't it a lot more complicated and difficult to explain than just a bunch of animals had the virus spreading between them, potentially between them and the people that worked with those animals? Um, And then it spilled over twice to people who then started spreading it to each other, because that is another thing that makes Wuhan unique. It's a city. And so if spillover occurs in the city, there are going to be many more opportunities for that virus to establish human-to-human transmission.
0: I'm listening to you, and I've read your paper, as much of it as, as I, admittedly, an English major can understand. Um, but I think there are a lot of people—and I'm talking about good-faith people here who can say, well, wait a minute, there was this city, Wuhan, the Wuhan Institute of Virology was there, the Wuhan CDC was there— and voila, there is a virus there. This is, the short version of this is the Jon Stewart explanation.
1: There's a novel respiratory coronavirus overtaking Wuhan, China. What do we do? Oh, you know who we could ask? The Wuhan novel respiratory coronavirus lab. The disease is the same name as the lab. That's That's just a little too weird, don't you think? How do you feel about that?
0: Like, how do, you, how do you want people who have that occur to them to think about this?
2: So I think that we really need to think about this in two ways, right? It does seem suspicious because we've all heard about all the SARS-2 work that was going on at WIV. And we've all heard, you know, that what what are the chances, let's just say, at any lab in Wuhan let's say they found the precursor virus. That's why it would completely change my calculus. Um, And that's why I would revise my view to to actually think that it was a lab leak. And the reason for that is what are the chances? What are the chances that a virus would naturally emerge on the other side of the river when the lab had the same virus in its collection um, and just happened to be using it? To me, that would be a high indication of a lab-acquired infection. But that's not what we have evidence of. Angie says she's also not persuaded by the theory
0: that virologist Shi Zhengli, who worked at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, had anything to do with the pandemic. Shu, sometimes referred to in COVID discourse
2: as the Batwoman, studies coronaviruses. And actually in January of 2020, her behavior itself is very inconsistent with somebody who's trying to cover up starting a pandemic. She went uh, in December, I think, to a Nipah virus conference in Singapore. Pictures were posted of it on Twitter, not in the context of like, oh, good thing I'm out of Wuhan right now. It was more like great to see all of my international collaborators at this uh, Hennepa virus meeting. Pretty normal scientific stuff. In January, a colleague of hers who is now in Singapore, Lin Fa Wang, he's a very famous bat coronavirologist and virologist, was visiting Wuhan and went out to dinner with his whole group. They were hanging out, taking group photos, not acting at all like people who would have just, you know, caused a pandemic and were trying to cover it up. I have to say, if I knew that I had caused a lab-acquired infection of any kind, and I was trying to keep it secret, which I wouldn't do. Um, probably would I be going out into the city that this virus was now secretly spreading in and, you know, go out for dinner and and uh, invite my friends to come visit and my colleagues to come visit? Probably not. The final thing is that that Shenzhen Li has published extensively on all of her new coronaviruses that she's found as she's isolated them and has continued to do so actually throughout the pandemic. So I really don't think that we are gonna see evidence that for whatever reason, she was sort of arbitrarily covering up uh, having a SARS-2 progenitor. When we come
0: back, what about the other lab in Wuhan?
1: Price and coverage match limited by state law.
0: What Angie comes back to is not the Wuhan Institute of Virology or the other labs there. The thing that she says sets Wuhan apart from a number of other similar places
2: is a well-documented live animal trade. And that in itself creates a risk, a known risk, that exactly mirrors the risk that was recognized at the time of the SARS-Classic epidemic in emergence. The other thing is that spillovers actually happen pretty frequently, including spillovers of SARS-related bat coronaviruses. And some models have, you know, we can't ever really know the number, but some models have estimated that there could be tens of thousands, potentially even hundreds of thousands of spillovers of these viruses every year, just in East and Southeast Asia. Now, why, why don't we have hundreds of thousands of pandemics every year? I'm very glad that we don't. But that's because a lot of the time spillover happens and it's a dead end. One of the reasons it can be a dead end is that there's no other person in very rural areas to pass that virus on to. Hmm. But in a city, in a market where a lot of people are indoors together, they're in contact with those animals that are kept at the market, they're working at the market all day There are many, many opportunities for a very lucky virus that happens to be very good at growing in a variety of different species, which we now know that SARS-2 is, um, to establish human-to-human transmission chains. In a city of 11 million people, that actually argues, I think, strongly for zoonosis, because you actually would have the opportunity in these circumstances to establish that human-to-human transmission and gradually spread it throughout Wuhan, and then throughout the rest of China, and then throughout the world.
0: I wanted to ask you about the other research lab, uh, the Wuhan CDC. There, there's some reporting from CNN that the whatever the DOE assessment is, is that it's it's based on something about that lab. And i I saw you tweeting about this as well. I, I wonder yeah. what you could tell me ab- about that lab, and then why you kind of went meh,
2: no. Yeah. So we never really went, "Eh, no, we were like, oh, interesting. Um, This lab is, you know, right down the street from the wanted market. According to the WHO report, they they moved there on December 2nd. Now, when you move a laboratory, you know, you're not moving over your whole lab in the morning and then just decide to like whip up some virus cultures in the afternoon. Um, Usually it's a lot more work than that to actually move an entire laboratory. Could there have been an accident or an issue in the course of moving? Maybe. Um, But it's not clear that they actually had relevant samples. So there was one guy at the Wuhan CDC who had collaborated with some people and that's because he was mainly involved in doing field work with bats. And this is Dr. Tian? Yeah, this is Dr. Tian. So he, um, you know, has been very involved in all this, Quote unquote adventurous work, going into caves, trapping bats, taking samples from bats, sometimes taking samples from other animals too. Um, this is important work, virus discovery work. But importantly, this guy was not actually so much of a virologist. He wasn't bringing bats back to the Wuhan CDC. But in all of his papers, anytime there was any sort of virus isolation, it was clearly done somewhere else where they had hmm. an a, a appropriate containment lab and also probably where they had expertise in growing viruses, because despite what you might think and how some people portray this, viral genomic sequence is not a recipe. You can't just like sort of like do something like on CSI where you like type in a sequence and then, you know, your little virus printer is going to spit out like a custom virus, It doesn't work like that. And it's actually technically pretty difficult, whether you're talking about isolating a virus from a tissue sample that you've collected or a fecal sample that you've collected. That's even more difficult um, to to making a reverse genetic system based on a sequence. Now, it can all be done, but is it something that some guy who's mostly famous for going out and catching bats is doing um, in his spare time? Probably not. Um, And it's pretty clear from looking at his work that he wasn't doing any kind of, you know, virus isolation, much less cloning viruses and making chimeric viruses and doing all this, you know, gain-of-functiony stuff that that a lot of people have implicated in this. And again, we don't know what the DOE's evidence was, but it doesn't explain how you would then have two spillovers um, two weeks apart. And if Dr. Tian was the only one who was working on those bats and and those things at the WCDC, then what? Did he get infected with Lineage B, go have lunch at the Wan Market, and then two weeks later got infected with Lineage A? I mean, I suppose that it's possible, but I just don't think that that's a very likely explanation. Given the limits
0: of, of what China is willing to share, can we ever know?
2: There's a lot of speculation about China covering things up and not telling the whole truth and being secretive. And, you know, that seems to be kind of across the board, um, how the Chinese government operates about a lot of things. You know, that doesn't mean that we cannot trust any of the evidence we have from China. Um, That also doesn't mean that we'll never find the answer. But one thing that's very clear to me and that I don't think people really appreciate is that in the course of talking about these deleted databases and all these hypothetical things China has done to cover up a lab origin, people are overlooking the things that we all know that they've done that potentially would cover up a market origin. And that is going to make it more difficult for us to conclusively demonstrate that that's how it started. For example, January 1st, 2020, and Mark, the world found out the day before about this new viral pneumonia that was spreading and January 1st wanted market shut down all animals removed property disinfected animals, probably cold um, animals not mentioned uh, and the market has not reopened. Um, So it's not selling animals. It's not selling meat. It's not selling produce. It's not selling seafood. It's not selling shit. And on top of that, Michael Standard um, has reported fairly extensively, as extensively as he could when he was still in China, that in the farms in Hubei province, um, all of those farms have been shut down and they also have not reopened. So not only can we not get samples if they weren't taken from the animals that were actually at Wanan, we can't even go uh, investigate the sources of, or the potential sources for some of these samples.
0: Angie says it would be extremely helpful to compare any animal samples, if they existed, to the environmental ones gathered in cages and processing areas at
2: one and market. You know, we have this the sequence data. Now, I'll just explain very, very quickly that when you sequence stuff, um, it's agnostic about what species you're sequencing. So you get all these little um, fragments of sequence called reads. And there's millions of these. And so you use uh, bioinformatics to assemble these into intact sequences. The paper that was published by the China CDC, led by George Gao, on February 25th, 2022, the day before our preprint came out, um, showed that there was lineage A at the market as well as lineage B, which was new for us, even though we predicted it, and actually compelled us to get our preprints out the next day because we thought it was important. That paper concluded that there was a stronger association between the viral sequences and these other sequencing reads in those samples from humans. But what it didn't show was what other species had sequencing reads in there. And there were a lot of unmapped reads. Um, And basically, if we had the raw data for those sequences, we could find out what species those unmapped reads were mapping to. and So potentially... you can see that's a raccoon
0: dog, Correct. that's a whatever.
2: Exactly. The key is that that raw data also hasn't been shared, which is why those pap- that paper probably hasn't been published, because in order to publish in a reputable journal, you are required to deposit your raw data into a public database or repository. So um, there is some data that might give us some more insight about this but because there was a concerted effort i think to not look in the animals when it was clear that that this was associated with a market where live animals were sold there was a real effort i think to prevent that data from ever being collected and to to prevent access to anything that would really implicate the live animal trade because again that's been recognized as a risk for the last 20 years ever since SARS emerged. And uh, it it's a little embarrassing that, um, that this happens despite the fact that there were, you know, there was a lot of effort put into trying to prevent that from happening.
0: How much does solving this riddle, pinpointing the origin matter? Like, could, might we be better off if sort of societally people could say, like, okay, this could have come from, you know, Zoonotic transfer, it could have come from some type of lab accident. Let's focus on the future, or is that like a, a false dichotomy?
2: I think it's really we need to do both things, right? Like I think it is important to find out the origin with a, a strong level of confidence. Um, but we don't necessarily have to to get started on trying to, to think about future pandemic prevention and preparedness and response efforts. But the reason why it's important to know how this pandemic started is we don't want to waste a lot of time doing even more stuff to prevent lab leaks when the reality is the most dangerous gain-of-function lab in the world is run by Mother Nature, who is doing gain-of-function research through evolution uh, with countless viruses, many more than we know, definitely SARS coronavirus 3 is out there, definitely MERS coronavirus 2 is out there. Um, There may even be other types of uh, coronaviruses that we've never seen emerge into the human population that could potentially be pandemic pathogens. So if we are spending all of our time worrying about the hypothetical threat of a lab-acquired infection or a lab leak then we're not devoting the same resources and the resources that we should be devoting to these very real problems that pose tremendous threats to us, potentially existential threats. Do you know how much worse the SARS-2 pandemic would have been if it had been caused by a more transmissible SARS-1? SARS-1 is a 10% case fatality rate. If it had been caused by MERS, I'm not exaggerating when I'm saying that's potentially an existential threat to our civilization. MERS has an has a case fatality rate of about 30 to 35%. Can you imagine if one out of every three people who got COVID died from it? That's something I think that people have kind of not thought about. They're thinking about, you know, the millions who have died from COVID, which is obviously terrible, but they're not thinking about how it could have been many millions more if it had been a different virus, which may well be out there. I don't think we should ever assume that as viruses get more transmissible, or more human adapted, they become attenuated because we have a lot of counterexamples of them not doing that. Has Ebola gotten, you know, milder over the last 50 years since it emerged? Hmm. It has not. Um, so I think that we really do need to be thinking about origins, not just in like helping us identify these threats, but also helping us focus our efforts to to mitigate these threats going forward. And to me, there's a really disproportionate use of resources if you're providing this sort of false equivalence that either the lab or the market are equally possible, um, because then you're going to respond to them as if they're equally dangerous and they're not. Angie Rasmussen, I can't thank you enough
0: for walking through all of this with me and for your time. Thank you so much for having me on here, Lizzie. Andy Rasmussen is a virologist at the Vaccine and Infectious Disease Organization at the University of Saskatchewan in Canada. And that is it for our show today. What Next TBD is produced by Evan Campbell. Our show is edited by Shannon Palace. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio for Slate. TBD is part of the larger What Next family, and we're also part of Future Tense, a partnership with Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. And if you're a fan of the show, I have a request for you. Become a Slate Plus member. Just head on over to slate.com whatnextplus to sign up. All right, we'll be back on Sunday with another episode. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening.